This podcast from Faith Bible Church in Reno, Nevada. Faith Bible Church is a Christ-centered Bible teaching ministry dedicated to bringing the good news of the gospel to the whole world. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And now for this week's message from Pastor Alan Battle. Today's scripture is taken from Ecclesiastes Chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Here's another misfortune that I have seen on earth, and it weighs heavily on people. God gives a man riches, property, and wealth so that he lacks nothing that his heart desires. Yet God does not enable him to enjoy the fruit of his labor. Instead, Someone else enjoys it. This is fruitless and a grave misfortune. Even if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, even if he lives a long, long time but cannot enjoy his prosperity, even if he were to live forever, I would say, A stillborn child is better off than he is. Though the stillborn child came into the world for no reason and departed into darkness, though its name is shrouded in darkness, though it never saw the light of day nor knew anything, yet it has more rest than that man. If he should live a thousand years twice, yet does not enjoy his prosperity, for both of them die. This is the word of God. So we continue in our journey through the book of Ecclesiastes. And I want to remind you of how the author has structured this book. He's speaking from the perspective of a professor of philosophy who sees things from a very cynical, disillusioned, secular point of view. He's speaking from his long experience of someone who has it all, who's done it all, and who knows it all. He comes to the conclusion that this life under the sun is meaningless. It's a vapor that quickly vanishes away and is forgotten. But once in a while, and especially at the end of the book, he breaks out of his pretended cynical persona and he gives us a God-informed perspective. And when I say that his worldly perspective is pretended, That doesn't mean he didn't actually experience that kind of perspective in his life. He did. Shortly after Solomon, the author, 
became king, he began marrying foreign wives. And at first, it was to build his international influence. They were politically strategic connections. But it seems that he quickly took up wife collecting as a hobby. (laughs) He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Unfortunately, he not only took on these wives, but he took on their false gods as well. 1 Kings 11, verses 1 and 2 says, King Solomon fell in love with many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, including Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They came from the nations about which the Lord had warned the Israelites, you must not establish friendly relationships with them. If you do, they will surely shift your allegiance to their gods. But Solomon was irresistibly attracted to them. Now I'm sure he thought he could handle it. But that's the nature of sin. It's a slippery slope. Like if you let the nose of the camel into the tent, it's soon going to be sleeping with you. (laughs) So Solomon gave himself over to his sin. It says in verse 6 in that same passage, Solomon did evil in the sight, in the Lord's sight. He did not remain loyal to the Lord like his father David had. So Solomon knew from firsthand experience the futility of a man who lived under the sun. That's his expression for living apart from God. That life without benefit of God's revelation and his direction. So last week, we were in the section where he had pulled off his cynic's mask and... He gave us instruction on how to guard against the pitfalls of phony worship. He saw that one, we saw that one should come to worship with the intention to listen to God and to pray humbly for his will, not ours, to be careful with what we promise to God, and then to be circumspect when we speak as we gather together with other believers to worship. This week, we're switching back to viewing life under the sun, particularly the troubles that come from money. The use of money began in prehistoric times. We don't even know when it started. And human beings are the only creatures who use money. So what is it? Well, simply put, money represents the ability to exchange goods and services. So even though I gave this sermon the title Money Troubles, Ecclesiastes is talking about any kind of wealth that we might have. Now, there's a painting in the Louvre in Paris. It's called The Money Changer and His Wife. And it was painted in 1514 in the Netherlands by an artist named Quentin Matzis. And it depicts a prosperous middle-class businessman who changes foreign currency for merchants who've come to trade in Antwerp. And Antwerp was an important commercial city of that day. 
And the money changer is carefully weighing a gold piece to determine its value. But next to him sits his wife. She has a book in her hand, and it's some kind of religious text in which we see the Virgin Mary holding the Christ child. But the wife isn't reading the book. She's looking at the piles of coins and pearls on the table. Now, art critics have found all kinds of symbolism in this painting. The pearls, they say, represent lust. The scales represent coming judgment. And the snuffed candle on the shelf represents the brevity of this life. This is an obvious comment on the way that money diverts us from what's really important. Money focuses on what is earthly, and it pulls us away from eternal things. Money is an under-the-sun kind of thing. So in verses 5, 8 through 6, 12, the professor is going to tell us about the troubles that come from money, the injustice of money, the insatiable appetite we have for money, the impermanence of money, the joylessness of money, and the irrelevance of money. And then once again, he'll take off his cynic's mask, and he will also tell us of the goodness of money from God's perspective. So the first trouble with money is the injustice of it. I'm reading from the New English translation today. Um, I felt that it best captured the meaning of this passage. So if you see the extortion of the poor or the perversion of justice and fairness in the government, do not be astonished by the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher official, and there are higher ones over them. The produce of the land is seized by all of them. Even the king is served by the fields. So don't be astonished when you see inequality and injustice. Don't be surprised. It's inevitable. We hear a lot about the injustice of income equality today or inequality. Those who push for equality start with the premise that everyone should have equal amounts of wealth. And according to the professor here, he says that's never going to happen. You know, even in communist countries, like the former Soviet Union, the leaders and bureaucrats had their own elite, exclusive system of grocery stores, hospitals, schools, better apartments, while the ordinary Russian citizens were crammed into multi-generation two-room apartments and waited in line for hours to get food and other goods. In communist China, They have one of the world's highest levels of income equality, with the richest 1% of households owning a third of the country's wealth. And when Hugo Chavez brought socialism to Venezuela, he preached that rich people were bad. And then he became a millionaire while in office. And the Venezuelan people now have a popular saying, They say, socialism in Venezuela loves poor people so much that it multiplies them. (laughs) 
Capitalism under Western democracies also has inequalities. But capitalism is not the cause of poverty or injustice. In fact, according to economic experts, poverty has dramatically decreased in the world over the last 30 years. Almost double, almost twice as much wealth. And it's not due to the spread of socialism or of foreign aid programs. It's due to the expansion of free market enterprise. So as Winston Churchill said, democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others. (laughs) So this verse isn't about competing economic systems, though. It's about the human condition. Wherever there are people, there will be inequality and exploitation. Every bureaucracy has waste and corruption, from the lowest official to the highest official. In this life under the sun, devoid of God, everyone wants their cut. The issue is human greed, not the economic system that's in play. And the professor is only saying that this shouldn't surprise you. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't work to reduce injustice. The Bible is full of exhortations for us to fight for those who are being exploited. But that's another sermon. So, the next trouble with money is the fact that the desire for money is insatiable. Can't be satisfied. Verse 10. The one who loves money will never be satisfied with money. He who loves wealth will never be satisfied with his income. This is also futile, vain. Money is a jealous God. It wants all of your attention. The more you pursue it, the less it satisfies. In a scene from The Simpsons, Homer tells his boss, Montgomery Burns, You know, Mr. Burns, you're the richest guy I know. And Mr. Burns replies, yes, but I'd trade it all for a little more. (laughs) How much is enough? A little more. There's never enough to satisfy. And the more you get, the more people there are who want some of it. Verse 11, when someone's prosperity increases, those who consume it also increase. So what does its owner gain except that he gets to see it with his eyes? Family members, friends, and business opportunities are always knocking at the door of someone with money. Lottery winners are quick to learn this. And the more your assets grow the more time and attention you have to give to them, the more you have to keep your eyes on them. You need bankers and financial managers. Instead of being able to sit back and relax, the one who loves money stays awake at night, worrying about it. Look at verse 12. The sleep of the laborer is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the wealth of the rich will not allow him to sleep. So another money trouble is that it is impermanent. Proverbs 
2.5 says, Cast but a glance at riches, and they are gone. For they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. The professor puts it this way. Here is a misfortune on the earth that I have seen, wealth hoarded by its owner to his own misery. Then that wealth was lost through bad luck. Although he fathered a son, he has nothing left to give him. Professor sees this as a great misfortune. Other versions call it a grievous evil. Some might call it a sick joke. For all of a man's efforts and planning, there's no guarantee that he's going to be able to hold on to what he accumulates. He may be building a legacy for his family, but it can disappear in a flash. And then even if he manages to hang on to it until he dies... He still loses everything in the end. Look at verse 15. Just as he came forth from his mother's womb, naked, will he return as he came. And he will take nothing in his hand that he may carry away from his toil. This is another misfortune. Just as he came, so will he go. What did he gain from toiling for the wind? He worked his whole life. And for what? only to have it snatched away in the end. The professor sees this as a great tragedy. It says in verse 17, Surely he ate in darkness every day of his life, and he suffered greatly with sickness and anger. That's highly emotional language. It's the language of depression. The sickness here is a sickness of heart. I like the way the New Living Translation put it. It says, Throughout their lives, they live under a cloud, frustrated, discouraged, and angry. So that leads us nicely to the next money trouble, and that is money is joyless. Now, even if he can keep it, the rich man who loves his money can never derive any joy from it. 6, 1, and 2. Here is another misfortune that I have seen on the earth, and it weighs heavily on people. God gives a man riches, property, and wealth, so that he lacks nothing that his heart desires, yet God does not enable him to enjoy the fruit of his labor. Instead, someone else enjoys it. This is fruitless and a grave misfortune. You know, Marie Antoinette reported, is reported to have said at the end of her life, nothing tastes She had lived a life of luxury uh, from her birth as a German princess to her elevation as the queen of France, yet she derived no joy from life. Nothing tasted. This is perhaps the greatest of money troubles. And Solomon experienced it personally. A life without joy is, I think, the closest we can come to hell on this side of the grave. Benjamin Franklin, like the professor, had a lot of natural wisdom. Even though he never professed to be a born-again believer, he was steeped in biblical values. Listen to what he discovered about money. Money never made a man happy yet, nor will it. There is nothing in its nature to produce happiness. The more a man has, the more he wants. 
Instead of its filling a vacuum, it makes one. It satisfies one want, it doubles and trebles that want another way. Sounds like the professor, doesn't he? This is a common malady among the rich. Like King Solomon, they have all the means needed to pursue every desire they have. And yet they keep coming up short, hoping the next thing is going to bring some joy. Made me think of Imelda Marcos and and all her shoes. I wonder if that next pair of shoes was going to do it for her. (laughs) And no amount of time can fix this problem. In fact, it only makes it worse. And this can drive a person to despair. So verse 3, Even if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, even if he lives a long, long time, but cannot enjoy his prosperity, even if he were to live forever, I would say a stillborn child is better off than he is. Though a stillborn child came into the world for no reason and departed into darkness, though its name is shrouded in darkness, though it never saw the light of day nor knew anything, yet it has more rest than that man. If he should live a thousand years twice, yet does not enjoy his prosperity, for both of them die. There it is again. You're better off dead, as he told us earlier. Better off never having been born. It's so ironic that people envy rich people. They, They want what they have. But the professor says that a stillborn child is better off because he will never have the experience of all the pain and frustration in this life. So finally, the last money trouble is that in the end, it's all completely irrelevant, meaningless. All, verse 7, all of a man's labor is for nothing more than to fill his stomach, yet his appetite is never satisfied. So what advantage does a wise man have over a fool? And what advantage does a pauper gain by knowing how to survive? It is better to be content with what the eyes can see than for one's heart always to crave more. This continual longing is futile and a chasing of the wind. Whatever has happened was foreordained, and what happens to a person was also foreknown. It is useless for him to argue with God about his fate because God is more powerful than he is. The more one argues with words, the less he accomplishes. How does that benefit him? In the end, everyone has the same fate. Both rich and poor die. And at that time, the amount of money they have or had is completely irrelevant. For the worldly man, God is nothing but an impersonal master of fate. Everything's determined ahead of time, and you can't do anything about it. It's better just to be resigned to your fate. You can't argue with God. You might as well just give up. And he ends with this further bit of pessimism. In verse 12. For no one knows what is best for a person during his life, during the few days of his fleeting life, for they pass away like a shadow, nor can anyone tell him what the future will hold for him on earth. 
How can we know how to act or what happens after we die? God isn't talking. But that's only true for the one who is living under the sun. And now we're going to switch to a look from above the sun. The professor will now give us God's view of the goodness of money. We actually skipped over these verses at the end of chapter 5 for the sake of continuity. I'm baffled as to why uh, the professor didn't didn't save this for the end of chapter 6. Instead, he put it at the end of chapter 5, and perhaps he didn't want to drive his students to complete despair, so he split it up, and and he gave them a little shot of hope in the middle, but I saved it for the end. So in verses 18, 19, and 20 of chapter 5, he writes this. I have seen personally what is the only beneficial and appropriate course of action for people to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all their hard work on the earth during the few days of their life, which God has given them, for this is their reward. To every man whom God has given wealth and possessions, he has also given him the ability to eat from them, to receive his reward, and to find enjoyment in his toil. These things are the gift of God. Now, this passage seems to contradict everything we just said, doesn't it? Now he says we can find enjoyment in the fruits of our labor. That is, we can enjoy the benefits of, that come from the money that we earn. How is that possible? Well, it's because when you see money as a gift from God instead of what is due to you, it turns a curse into a blessing. Notice how he uses the words given and gift. God has given us life. He has given us our wealth and our possessions. And he has given us the ability to enjoy them. And when we recognize that we deserve nothing, then everything's a gift. And we can receive it with joy. Look at verse 20. For he does not think much about the fleeting days of his life, because God keeps him preoccupied with joy. The joy he derives from his activity. So we can be free of anxiety over money and not even think about it because God keeps us busy with joy. The Apostle Paul discovered that joy. He says in Philippians 4.11, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It mattered not to Paul whether or not he had money. It didn't matter if his stomach was full or it was empty. He was content either way. Paul found the key, the secret to overcoming money troubles. The key is the power of Christ in our lives. 
Money doesn't have to cause trouble if we put it in its proper place. The moneylender's wife was allowing it to divert her attention from the heavenly things. But the painter did not leave us with a problem without a solution. For those who are seeking the truth, he left us a clue to show us the way. Also on the table is a small mirror. And it's reflecting the window in the room. And if you look carefully, you'll see a man standing in the window. With one hand on the windowsill and one hand holding a book. The symbolism here is rich in meaning. Through the window, we see the looming spires of a church. And the frame of the window is the shape of the cross. And the man's hand appears to be holding onto the cross while at the same time his gaze is in his book. That's the way to overcome money troubles. We take our place in Christ's church by keeping our noses in his book and by hanging on to the cross every day through repentance and believing the gospel. There's nothing more valuable in this world than the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross. In fact, it's more valuable than the whole world. When we acknowledge our sinfulness before a holy God and let his blood cleanse us from sin, we get eternal life. That's better than everything. Jesus asked, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, yet loses his soul? Worshiping the false god of money is a bad deal. If you think money brings trouble in this life, it's nothing compared to the trouble that is coming for those who reject Jesus' free offer of salvation. If we take that offer, we can live joyfully, free of money troubles in this life and looking forward to that perfect joy in the next life. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you that you have not hidden yourself, that you have revealed yourself through your word. Lord, that we can know you personally and that we can be transformed through the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And Lord, that we can live free of the troubles that come from depending on money. So Lord, we ask you that <clears throat> you supply our needs. Lord, that you give us the joy to keep us preoccupied with what we should be doing in this life. Instead of worrying about the things that don't matter, that are passing away, that are just vanity. So we give you praise, Lord. We thank you. In the name above all names, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to the preaching of God's Word from Faith Bible Church in Reno, Nevada. We hope that it has been an encouragement to you and that the Word of God will fill your hearts and minds as you walk through this world. 
If you have been blessed by this ministry and would like to make a small donation to help defray the cost of this podcast, just click on the green Support Us button at the top of the webpage. Thank you.